humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug, Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950 in lovely Eden Prairie, Minnesota. How are you? How are you doing? I am here in the bunker and I have brought my golden retriever, Jack, with me. And Jack, uh, who um, we have attempted to keep occupied, is not necessarily doing that. So if it sounds like I am distracted as I'm doing this show, that would be the reason. And we learn these things about our animals, don't we? (laughs) We learn sometimes uh, they're good with things and then sometimes they're not. So there you go. And I'm learning that lesson again right now. Thank you. All right, we have a great show today. The big interview is with Renee Lenore Hansen, who recently published a book about the effects of climate change, as well as the effects of a health condition, how the two have converged for her. It's a fascinating book, and I think that you will really like the interview with her. And then we're going to talk about, as well, the great divide in Minnesota between people who are of one camp and and people who are of other and how we need to talk to each other and get past fear. And then um, in my C block, I'm going to talk about the 2020 census data release that happened this week. Uh, But let's begin with our featured idealist, someone who didn't set out to change the world, but in the end, she absolutely did. A bit of background, the lawyers listening to the show will really perk up too. Women in this country have long fought for equality, for equal footing. It goes all the way back to colonial America, where the U.S. Constitution permitted only white-color men, mainly landowners, to vote. In 1848, in Seneca Falls, New York, the first women's uh, rights convention was held. It wasn't until 1920, another um, two years later, uh, that women... Uh, through the 19th Amendment, were allowed to vote, mainly white women, that would be, because uh, women of color um, were <laughs> the subject of the ravages of Jim Crow and not, not able to register to vote. But even then, we had gender rules very deeply embedded. World War II upended that a bit. Think of Rosie the Riveter taking on men's roles for the war effort. But after the war, things went back to, quote, normal. That gets us to 1964 and the federal civil rights laws that not only protected um, voting rights, um, and of course those are being chipped away right now as I speak, but also uh, civil rights around housing, around credit, around employment. You may have heard the phrase Title VII, and that's a reference to the seventh section of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. It prohibits discrimination based on uh, the act as a whole, uh, prohibits discrimination based on race, um, but Title VII is about employment um, in part, and it was a part of the sweeping civil rights legislation passed in 1964. The question became, however, that when you talk about sex as a word, sex discrimination, how broad was the law? Did it just simply mean that you couldn't refuse to hire a woman, you know, because she was a woman, or did it mean other things? And that brings us to our featured idealist, a woman who changed American law and set us on a course of a more equal society. Her case is considered one of the most important of the 20th century and has rippled literally to the present. I am talking about Anne Hopkins, an accountant who worked for Price Waterhouse, one of the largest accounting firms in the United States. 
when she was passed over for partnership because she was deemed not feminine enough, she sued and won. Who was Ann Hopkins? She was born in 1943 in Galveston, Texas, um, but was raised mainly in Germany due to her father's military service. After returning to the U.S. for college in Virginia and then to Indiana University for a master's degree in mathematics, we're talking a very smart person here, she worked for IBM where she created mathematical models for science and weather satellites. Mm-hmm, very smart. She left IBM to work for other smaller aerospace firms which put her in contact with many government and business worlds, and they remembered her. Eventually, she ended up at Price Waterhouse in 1978 and earned the reputation as a rainmaker, somebody who brought in business. And within five years, she had brought Price Waterhouse more business than nearly 90 other people who were up for consideration as a partner. By 1982, Ann Hopkins was, quote, up for partner. That is a term of art in both the legal and counting worlds as to whether one is worthy of moving to the ranks of part owner and way higher earnings. However, despite, despite Anne's reputation as extremely competent, her colleagues praised her professionalism and, quote, strong character, independence, and integrity, unquote. Of course, she was very smart as well. Despite all of that, the leaders of Pricewaterhouse passed Anne over for partnership. The reason? Mainly, it was because she was an assertive woman who competed for business like a man. Some co-workers described her as aggressive, foul-mouthed, demanding, and impatient with other staff members. Frankly, that would probably describe just any male partner at Pricewaterhouse at the time. Um, one firm partner said she should take a course in charm school. How would you like a man being told that? Of course, men who acted this way would have been, would have been praised and groomed to go forward to the highest levels of Pricewaterhouse, but not Ann Hopkins. So the first time she was up for partner, the firm told her no, postponed it till the next year. The next, and, and in the interim, Ann met with the head of her department who told her that she needed to, quote, walk more feminine, talk more femininely, dress more femininely, wear makeup, have, have her hair styled, and wear jewelry, unquote. Ann waited until the next year, and again, when she was passed over for partnership, at that point, she was done playing Price Waterhouse's game. She quit, and she sued the firm for violating Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Two, court ru- two courts ruled in Ann's favor before the case made its way to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court held that it was a violation of the law to fire someone for failing to conform to the stereotypes expected of someone based on their sex as either male or female. Um, the, uh, uh, ultimately, Anne was awarded a judgment of nearly half a million dollars, and eventually she rejoined Pricewaterhouse where she was accorded partner status until she retired. Anne died in 2018 and was survived by three children and several grandchildren. She had been married, but then she was divorced and she had to raise the children on her own. The idea of sex stereotyping was pretty radical in 1989 when the Supreme Court decided Anne's case. The concept has evolved in the law and become pivotal once again last year when the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a transgender woman and a gay man in two separate employment cases. Known as the Bostock decision, the Supreme Court's ruling made it illegal to fire any LGBTQ person because of their sexual or gender identity. 
That case, Bostock, is so important because there's no federal law protecting LGBTQ people. Um, there is no federal law. You, you've heard Congress talk about the Equality Act, and I'm here to tell you that is not going to get passed, notwithstanding Chuck Schumer's pronouncements that it will get passed. It's not going to get passed. They do not have the votes in the Senate. And so Bostock came along last summer, and, and, but until Bostock, it was legal in more than half the states of this country to fire transgender or gay or lesbian or bisexual people. It was legal to do that. They had no legal rights. With Bostock decision last summer, it became illegal to do it across the country. And that is because of Ann Hopkins and because of the idea of sex stereotyping being illegal. That, you know, you have the stereotype of how somebody's supposed to behave and if they don't behave that way, well, we're going to get rid of them. Ann Hopkins was a tough but well-respected woman. And she made all of that possible because she wouldn't let a group of men push her around. You know what? That's what idealists sometimes have to do. Stand their ground and fight. Thank God Ann Hopkins did that. Today, millions of women and LGBTQ uh, people are safer because she did that. So... There you go, our featured idealist, Ann Hopkins. You can just Google her or you can uh, Google the Price Waterhouse lawsuit and you can find more about her. Um, when we come back uh, from our break, uh, we're going to speak with uh, Renee Lenore Hansen about her book and about the division between rural Minnesota, urban Minnesota, which is reflective of what's going on in our country and how possibly we can get past that. It is a conversation that we barely can do here at the station in the big interview, and it's a conversation that needs to occur across our country in a variety of ways. Okay, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Um, if you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Um, you know, uh, follow me on Twitter at Ellie Krug, um, and email me if you want at elliejkrug at gmail.com. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. And we're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. Now is the time for the big interview, and I am thrilled to have on the line with me Renee Lenore Hansen, who is, um, in many ways, uh, uh, a, a person for all seasons in a variety of ways, and I'll explain that as we go along. She is the author of a book out just a couple of months ago on May 11th, a book titled Watershed, colon, Attending to Body and Earth in Distress. It's a book about uh, personal journey, so it relates to Lenore having a health condition around diabetes, but it's also about what's going on in our world relative to climate. And uh, Lenore is here from northern Minnesota. Lenore, uh, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? 
fine, Ellie. And generally, I go by Renee, but I love being called Lenore. Well, you know uh, what? That's uh, more my chosen name, actually. All right. Well, um, in all likelihood, I will tumble between the two of those. Okay. That's great. Perfect. <laughs> and that is <laughs> yes. that is the the utter horror of Ellie Two Party Radio because I am like a true. A, a relatively worthless radio host. Okay, but listen. All right, so Renee Lenore Hansen, um, welcome to the show. And tell me, let's at least first talk about your book. But I, you know, I ha- I'm having you on for another purpose. But tell us about, give us the, you know, the three-minute version of what brought about the book and what the book is about. Uh, titled yes, uh, titled Watershed Watershed Attending to Body and Earth Distress. Yeah, there's a initial section in the book called How to Live, which is really audacious, I to say. But the first line is climate catastrophe turns up in your bo- in my body and in yours. And that's one um, claim I make in the book. The book is not an argument, it's mostly storytelling. Tells a lot of stories from my students at Minneapolis College and from my family and community um, across Minnesota. I'm from, I was born in Bemidji, grew up right outside the Boundary Waters between Babbitt and Ely on Birch Lake, and um, have a great family clan. So a lot of the stories are from that and from my um, really diverse native-born and um, climate and other kind of refugee students at Minneapolis College, formerly MCTC, people who've asked me to to pass on their stories. And a big part of it is to connect those two communities. Uh, They're not two communities. Connect these multiple communities. And that's one way we really, our work meets Ellie. Um, The other thing in the book is that I, I was really concerned about climate, hearing the stories of, droughts and floods and fires that my students were escaping from, and um, our many friends didn't, and also watching the climate change in northern Minnesota, where it's changed a lot faster than it has in southern Minnesota so far. Right. And then I became type 1 diabetic, and that actually helped me deal with the climate crisis. Um, And the book kind of grew out of the convergence of those two. So that first section, how to live and paradoxically living in a damaged body can teach us much about how to live in a damaged ecosystem and about how to return to practices of joy. My my goal is for other people to who read it to to investigate their own story and figure out the connection between their body and the greater body of which we're a part. Well, and, and uh, Renee Lenore Hansen, uh, the the book is uh, published by the University of Minnesota Press, right? Mm-hmm. It came out on yes. May 11th, and uh, let listeners know uh, where they can find the book. I think the best way is to go to your nearest independent bookstores. My website is um, reneehansen.com. No, no periods or anything in it, and the front page has links to the University of Minnesota um, Press website from which you can order the book and also links to find your nearest independent bookstore. But you can also get it on Amazon very right. easily. Right. Put the title in and it'll come up. Yep, it really will. Well, and I, I've not been able to read the book, but the abstract is fascinating. And, 
you know, I think that, it, you know, I'm a writer as well. And I think that the, mm-hmm. the juxtaposition between, you know, the earth and climate change and then our bodies, which there's a lot of symbolism and, you know, in, in those comparisons. And, and, right. and I'm sorry that you had to have a horrible health condition arise in your mid sixties, um, that, um, help, you know, sort of triggered a, a, a number of things for you, but, um, I'm glad that you're health, you know, you're as healthy as you can be right now. And, and, and thank you for writing the book. Um, I'm thrilled that you, that it's out there. But what, yeah, what great for me. But what brings you and me together, actually, is that uh, through happenstance, we came to find out that we think alike as it relates to what's going on in Minnesota, as well as our country at large. And it's about the great division that's going on right now. Right. And, um, and you and I, as we prepared for this show, you related, you know, you have a lot of family in northern Minnesota, a lot of on, you know, on the Iron Range. And you have this very unique background of, 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 being, of, of having grown up in northern Minnesota, but then having lived in England while you studied for college, right? And then, right. and then having spent uh, a long time in the Twin Cities where you taught um, and, and where you met, you know, obviously, and, and formed relationships in the cities. And you have this perspective about how people outside of the Twin Cities, outside of the urban areas, view the world in certain ways and how people in the cities view the world in certain ways. And the division that has occurred between the two. Am I at least heading yeah, generally down the right, yeah, that's right. right, right path? Yeah. So um, go ahead. Go ahead. Part of what you bring in, Ellie, is the, uh, the central place of fear. So both, and there's not just two groups, but if we divide it generally that way, they're afraid of each other. They're afraid of each other um, dominating the arguments, winning the positions, um, they're afraid of offending one another. So in Minnesota, we often don't talk about the things we disagree about because we're afraid of losing the respect or care or community with others. So we're, we get to be quiet um, about the differences. And I think that, that um, fear that goes on both sides is really significant. Uh, I, I talked to you, Ellie, yesterday about the way my northern, northeastern Minnesota mining communities dislike environmentalists because they feel like they water down the argument and think that we up here in the woods don't care about water and they make false statements. And the environmentalists in the city, when I'm in the city, I'm mostly with my friends, the environmentalists. Um, I think that the the people up here just are don't care about the outside world, don't care about the environment, are ignorant, and and yet we're afraid to really talk across those. So that's a place where you and I are both. We're, we're really trying to do that a lot. I'm trying in the book to bridge between the groups. Just start the conversation. I'm going to read another tiny bit here. Well, hold on, um, hold on just a second, okay, go okay? Ahead. Because we've got to take a break. All right, but when we come mm-hmm. back, okay, 
please read from the book, and then we'll talk more about this great division and how you and I think alike about what we need to do to fix it. All right. Okay. So listeners, we've been speaking with Renee Lenore Hansen, the author of Watershed, Attending to Body and Earth in Distress, put out by the University of Minnesota Press. Go get that book. It looks fascinating. Um, When we come back from our break, we'll continue our discussion with Renee. Uh, You're listening to me, Ellie Krug on AM 950, Ellie 2.0 Radio. We'll be back in a sec. Thanks. Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Yours truly, Ellie Krug here. Um, We're in the midst of the big interview with Renee Lenore Hansen, author of Watershed, Attending to Body and Earth in Distress, book that just came out a couple of months ago, available at your local bookstore. They may have to order it or through Amazon um, or through... uh, ReneeHanson.com, her website. Renee, before we took our break, you were going to read something from the book, and then we we're going to continue to talk about the great divide that is going on in Minnesota, which is also representative of our country as a whole. Go ahead. Yes, I want to tell you that I would have died without insulin. I would each day. I need it every day. It hasn't been around long. This is a tiny bit. I said perhaps the miners and the environmentalists will never like each other. Those who discovered how to make and dose insulin did not like each other either. Frederick Banting and John McLeod, the benefactor who offered Banting a working space, aired their hatred for one another publicly, even refusing to accept the 1923 Nobel Prize in medicine together. (laughs) Just the same, their partnership extended millions of lives, including mine. Even if we dislike each other and disagree, we in Minnesota must work together for the We are the upstream caretakers. (laughs) Waters arrive here, mostly pure from the sky. Four continental river systems receive that water from us. Whether the water we send on is healthy depends on us. So, yeah, that's that's the little bit from the book. It's it's a tiny little story in there, but um, we don't have to like each other to begin to talk to each other. And we don't have to agree. We like to think that at basis we would agree on everything, but I'm not so sure we would, but we still might have to work together if we want um, a decent life for anything, ourselves, our children, our trees, our gardens, our farms. Um, and, and, yeah. You know, and... And there is so much to unpack here, and we have so much, you know, very limited time, you know. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, of, of how, how it is that we become such a society of winner take all, you know. And it's either my way or the highway. Tell me, will you please, in northern Minnesota, with your family, to the extent that you feel comfortable sharing it. What is their view of the world? And, and, and then I'm going to ask you to follow up with your colleagues, your friends in the Twin Cities. What's their view of the world? And then you and I have got to brainstorm how we're going to fix that divide. Yeah, first, I can't 
speak for anybody else's, but I can speak from my experience and, and for what I seem to perceive in those that I love. Yesterday when we were talking, Ella, you said that we all want the same things. And I said not necessarily, because many of, in my family, the biggest goal was, um, many, many goals, but a big goal was that we all be together in heaven. And there was the notion that there's one way that we can be together in heaven, and that's by being the right kind of Christian. Not even just Christian, but kind of the right kind. And this is a delicate thing to talk about. I'm being able to start to talk about it with many family members. But if you firmly believe that the only way to avoid hell or something like that after death is by by doing certain actions, um, going on a hajj or speaking certain words about Jesus, then you really want all those that you love to do that same thing. And I think that uh, I feel that a big problem in our culture, in what I inherited from my beloved parents and my beloved grandparents, is the notion that the life after death is more important than life here. Hmm. Um, and uh, that's that's a tough one <laughs> because it really is something that is so pervasive in certain atmospheres, not only Christian, but many other, somewhat in right. Islam. Right. right. Um, and that, that being right with God is more important than caring for this earth. I remember a song that we sang when I was a kid, this earth is not my home, I'm just traveling through. Um, and I, I want to undo that song from my mind, because if I only think I'm traveling through, I may not take any care of it at all. Right. And, and that is, you know, that is, <laughs> that is a tough nut to crack. Um, you know, my experience, um, has been that, and, and of course, I'm not from northern Minnesota, and I'm not from rural areas, although I grew up in Iowa. Um, but my experience has been that people simply are afraid of what they don't know and they don't understand. With, so, for example, with me being transgender, you know, the, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the big fear that I encounter with people is that somehow I'm going to influence their children, okay, and mm-hmm. cause them to be transgender. You know, or that somehow I'm, I'm a predator in some way and, oh, God forbid that a little child is in a restroom with me. But, but I can get past that barrier by just them getting to know me and, and, and listening mm-hmm. to me and understanding, hey, you know, I know the voice doesn't match the appearance, but, you know, I'm, I'm really care about this. I care about children just like you do, you know, and I want right. my child to succeed just like you do. What... What do you, because you have this unique perspective, what, how is it different for your city friends? You know, you've talked about, you know, people in northern Minnesota, it's a lot of things tied into very deep religion and this, the the focus on the afterlife rather than on present day. What about your city friends? Where, what on that end of the divide do you see? Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'm going to sidestep and answer a question you didn't ask, but I think that um, the way that my cousins and I can still talk to each other is that we love each other. And I'm talking about my cousins who are most ideologically different from me now. Okay. But the love is really deep. And if you can stay in the love, you can get across the conversation somehow, often. And... um, my city friends are also, I also really love them, and they're wonderful. They tend to come to northern Minnesota, especially the Boundary Waters where I am, to get away. And they want it to be pristine and safe as a vacation, sort of. This is not everybody. Um, and it's for them to meet anybody and really dig in and do the work of of conversation or even the work that I do up here, which is to try to nurture sedges and get rid of root canary grass and know what the woods around me might need. It's um, in my view, too often visiting outside of the city. It's like, well, I need a break from the city. So I'm going to go and, float on the lake and fish a little instead of really coming to know it. Um, instead of being com- becoming connected to it. Right. Yeah. They, they connected aesthetically maybe, but connected deeply enough so that you know what the, well, what the fears are, what the stresses are, what the complexity of it is. Because we're all a lot more complex than than the initial notions are, or than the labels right. uh, make us. Right. So we have like three minutes left. Tell me, how are we going to bridge the divide? I mean, you and I talked yesterday. We have no governmental entity, no governmental leaders, no nobody going out and trying to facilitate conversations between people who are different. No one is doing that. And, and how can you and I do that? Well, I kind of disagree that no one's doing that. I think a lot of people are trying, and I want to give them some credit for that. But each of us has to, and the small things are what matter. So that you have this radio show, that you have conversations with people like me and other people who are of all sorts, that, that matters. It's these, these tiny things that could well, that will that will that give us possibly a way of turning around our mindset from the individual life is the only important thing. Individual human life is the only important thing to recognizing our oneness. Right. Um, as we converse, we we feel that connection, and then we get it, kind of. And we need to get it in tiny little doses until we really alter that way. And. Yeah, I think every chance we take when we feel it's okay, opening up and speaking with others, especially about the things that we're really terrified of, can help. Well, and when I, I'll tell you, and I, I agree with you, there's a lot of different small things happening, but when I say no one is doing it, I'm talking more about large scale because, frankly, I think our country is in like the emergency room stat- status, all right, mm-hmm. as it relates to the divide. 
And I think that it calls for a massive, massive systematic program of convenings and facilitation of, of conversations. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. for me, the equivalent it's is... It's not just the country that the world is in. Oh, for emergency sure. Emergency room, code blue. You know, so it's, we're at a crisis moment and we need, we need big conversations. Uh, maybe, yeah, I agree with you on that. You and I have to do our part. We have to step up and do things we're not really comfortable doing and try them out and we'll make mistakes. And everybody has to do it because we can't wait for some brilliant somebody else to do it. There's no brilliant somebody else. There's us. I, I can't agree with that more. Um, and you know, uh, Renee, Lenore Hansen, uh, unfortunately we're out of time. Uh, and I knew that, I knew that that would happen when I started talking to you yesterday, because I think there's so much more that you and I could unpack here. Um, Mm -hmm. I do want you to know that I hope that you and I can work together. Um, I would love to be able to do that. And, um, and I, I just want to tell you, thank you for writing your book and thank you for showing up. Okay. And Ellie, thank you for being your authentic self and following the turns and twists of your path. Oh, thanks. Thank you. All right. Well, listen, um, you and I will talk again, I'm sure offline and, um, but, but thank you. And so, uh, take care and, uh, listeners again, Mm -hmm. the title of the book is watershed attending to body and earth in distress by Renee Lenore Hansen. Get the book, read it. It sounds like a fascinating book. When we come back from our break, I'll do the C block. I'm going to talk about the census data and what it means for America. Thanks. Bye. We're back on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Uh, I could have spent an hour talking to uh, Renee Lenore Hansen. Um, we barely s- scratched the surface. There is so much to unpack. And the problem is, really, we're just not doing enough to even begin about addressing the great divide, what's going on in the country right now. Now, uh, first, I, uh, before I get to the census, I want to give you just a very quick update. Uh, many shows ago, I can't even, I didn't even get a chance to look beforehand, but many shows ago, um, I did a piece about a featured idealist, Stephen Danziger, who took on Chevron in the Peruvian, no, excuse me, the Ecuadorian rainforest, um, and who ultimately Um, was the subject of a contempt proceeding in New York City and placed in house arrest for more than a year. He had a trial uh, last week over contempt of violating a court order about turning over his personal computer and phone because he didn't want to do it as a lawyer, didn't want private client information to be disclosed uh, to Chevron. Um, That trial took place, and uh, he was found guilty of contempt. He is now 
of going to jail. Um, follow that story because it is a story about an idealist, again, um, who didn't want to cede ground. And, um, and I think that there is so much there that we don't know about as it relates to that story. And it's a story about power and taking on power and all of those things. Okay, so that's a, a short update. Now, uh, for the U.S. Census. Uh, many of you heard about the census that came out this week, uh, the, 20, the, res the results of the 2020 census. And um, it was not surprising, okay, that the proportion of people of color other than the white color, people of, you know, a biracial, of mixed racial identities, it's not a surprise that their numbers have increased dramatically in America. I mean, like by 50, and that the percentage of them in this country is growing astronomically, particularly for Latinx and Asian people. Uh, but the population, okay, the population for white people right now, um, which was 69% of the country in 2000, 20 years ago, the population of people who identify only as white, okay, is now down to 58%. That is a 12, 12 point drop, excuse me, 11 point drop in 20 years. This is significant because we've got maybe another 15 years before white colored people will be a minority in America. Um, uh, there are a number of different uh, pieces came out. The New York Times has a wonderful story um, by uh, Sabrina Travernersi and Robert uh, Gel Geliboff, <laughs> I'm just murdered their names, titled Census Show, Sharply Growing Numbers of Hispanic, Asian, and Multiracial Americans. Um, it's a great piece. And then there was another piece in the New York Times where, titled Where the Racial Makeup of the U.S. Shifted in the Last Decade. There's a, there's a wonderful graph well, it's a map of the United States um, in that story that came out on August 12th, uh, and it's a, um, written by uh, Denise uh, Liu and Charlie Smart and Lazaro Garino. Uh, it's a, got a wonderful map. It's, again, New York Times titled, Where the Racial Makeup of the U.S. Shifted in the Last Decade. They begin that piece by saying this, quote, nearly every county in the United States became more diverse in the last decade as the nation recorded its first drop in white population in 2020. More than a third of the nation now lives in counties where people of color are a majority. Let me say that to you again. More than a third of the nation now lives in counties where people of color are a majority. And if you look at this map, you will see it's, it's um, by a number of different arrows uh, indicating a share of people of color where it increased versus the share of white population uh, that um, increased. And there are a whole lot more arrows of people of color where it grew in, across the country. Um, why is this important? It's important for a couple of reasons. One is notwithstanding what's going on in our country around skin color, okay, it is inevitable that our country is becoming more diverse. And we just, we just need to deal with that. And we need, to, we need to prepare for that way better than what we've been doing, okay? That means, in part, about dismantling structural racism and things like that. 
a whole different talk, okay? Secondly, what this means is census data. What this means, in my I fear, is puts our country at greater risk. Those of you who have followed uh, Christian white nationalism or just, <laughs> just white nationalism generally, sorry, I like Christian people, I don't mean to demean them in any way, but those who follow that, the, the movement, as I do, I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm like watching, reading all those stories. There's this thing about replacement theory that they advocate, that they talk about. And what that is, is that the liberals, okay, the people who are not like them, that the liberals are working to bring in anyone who is white as a, as a means of replacing white people to increase the power of liberals, the power of those who would take away from white people in our country. And what this, these census results will do, they will feed into that narrative. And I, I fear that things will get far, far more heated than what they are right now. I fear that because if you believe that you're losing the country and you can't, you can't stop that, this ain't gonna, you know, you, you can try and do it through voting, but that's just, that's just gonna be a stopgap measure. If you feel that you're losing the country that you believe you deserve, that doesn't leave a whole lot of options for people. And so I fear it will become far more heated than what it is. And so, I don't know, stay tuned. Um, I'm going to dissect more of, the, more of the census data as we go along, um, and I'll come back and give you some other observations about that. Okay, well, listen, this has been quite the show. Um, I have been multitasking, trying to keep a puppy at bay, um, in part from, from uh, ripping uh, up the carpeting here in the studio. <laughs> Hey, there's your Jack the Puppy report. He is still quite adorable. He is still quite beautiful. He has doubled in size in the month that I have had him. And, um, but uh, he's a challenge. And big thanks to my producer, Patrick, who I forgot to thank last week. Patrick, you're keeping up with me and you're like watching me here in the studio trying to wrangle this puppy dog. Listeners, thanks for putting up with me as well. Uh, it's been one of those shows. Ah, but if you like what you hear, tell others about it. Thanks for tuning in every week. I'll be back next week. And in the meantime, go and do something to make the world a better place. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. <laughs>